Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Rare Book School series of public summer lectures. We're really pleased this afternoon to have Glenn Maranker, who has one of the preeminent uh, collections of Sherlock Holmes artwork, manuscripts, and books in the world. He's also one of the most knowledgeable individuals about the world of Sherlock Holmes, publishing history, and the workings of the 19th and early 20th century book trade. Glenn Maranker was graduated summa cum laude from Yale College in 1975 with a Bachelor of Science degree in computer science. I'm reliably informed that he pretty much at the same time minored in Chinese art. His master's and doctoral degrees from the Massachusetts uh, Institute of Technology in Computer Science quickly followed. Upon graduation, Glenn designed special purpose machine architecture at, you'll recognize it, IBM's Thomas J. Watson Research Center. But he also worked, think how young he was, he's about 27 years old, he also worked as an adjunct professor at Columbia University. In 1981, Glenn and his wife Kathy relocated to the Bay Area. There was nothing going on there in terms of computers or startups or anything like that where he joined another company that many of you might know of called Valid Logic Systems. Glenn was its fifth employee, and two years later, it was three years later, it went public. While at Valid, he, yeah, had an adjunct appointment at UCAL Berkeley teaching special computer design. Uh, after holding a number of senior positions at several Silicon Valley startups, Glenn was invited by a guy named Steve Jobs to join Next Computer in 1990, and then when he moved back to reclaim the job from which he had been fired, Apple Computer in 1996. For most of his tenure at Apple, Glenn ran hardware development and served as Apple's chief technology officer in charge of hardware. You remember that thing called the iMac? Maranker. That's Maranker, the machine that saved Apple Corporation. Long a bibliophile, Glenn now devotes himself to book collecting, to lecturing and assisting special collections departments and boards at such distinguished institutions as the Houghton Library at Harvard, the Harry Ransom Center at UT Austin, the Newberry Library in Chicago, uh, and the Toronto Reference Library, where he served as chairman of the board of American Friends. He also collects and lectures on the history of cryptography, he owns an Enigma machine, which is totally cool. And he has an amazing cryptography collection. I've seen it with my own eyes. And he is a director of the National Cryptologic Foundation in Fort Meade, Maryland. Uh, pretty cool stuff. Among, among uh, his distinguished career highlights, He's been the chairman of the board of the Baker Street Irregulars Trust. He co-curated the exhibition Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, a sesquicentennial, that's 150 years, sesquicentennial assessment at a place called the Houghton Library at Harvard, his alma mater. Uh, no, Yale. Um, he, he lent and curated six art work pieces for the Museum of the City of London. David, are you out there? Um, for their exhibition, Sherlock Holmes, The Man Who Never Lived and Who Will Never Die. <laughs> in 2015, he assisted in the restoration of the lost silent film from, 20, from 1916, there's this film, Sherlock Holmes, and they, 
they restored this, this destroyed and lost film. And on the 100th anniversary of its first screening, they were able to bring it back. Something very consonant with the theme of regathering those scattered leaves that we talked about yesterday in the, yeah, okay, Harry Potter room. <laughs> In 2016, he delivered uh, the uh, Adrian Van Sindren Lecture at Yale University. And um, when I came up to the uh, Beinecke Library shortly thereafter, they were still raving about it. Um, and I thought, wow, this Maranker guy really gets around. He is Sherlockissimus. Nobody, nobody, nobody in America knows more about the world of Sherlock Holmes and the book than our speaker today, Glenn Maranker. Good afternoon. Could we have the lights, please? Ah, great. First, I'd like to say I am unimaginably excited to be here this week. Uh, I've known about the Rare Book School for a very long time. I've never participated. Um, I came here with uh, unrealistically high expectations, and they've been eclipsed. <laughs> eclipsed. What I'd like to talk about is collecting a little bit. You know, when collectors talk about the thrill of the chase, they usually mean the pleasures of pursuit or the satisfactions of ownership. We mean things like scrutinizing auction listings, pouring through catalogs after catalogs, visiting bookstores, antiquarian bookshops, even going to used bookstores. A lot of that furniture went into that store with forgotten books. And our hope, of course, is to track down a particular volume to find a surprise gem and add it to our library. I think Nick Vazbane's captured this mania best in, in his book, A Gentleman. I think no other single book, in my mind, uh, captures the joy, the compulsion, the consumption that book collectors are afflicted with. But questing and acquiring are only a small part of my bibliomania. Many books have a tale to tell beyond that which is printed within their covers. Tracking down the backstory, what's excuse me, tracking down the backstory, a book's printing history, its provenance, is a never-ending chase for me, and it's a good deal less costly than acquiring books. <laughs> Today, I'd like to share three books with you and the quests they inspired for me. Some of the questions they raised, how did Sir Arthur Conan Doyle come to inscribe a pirate edition of his second Sherlock Holmes story? What, when, and where is the Coburg's Mechanic Institute and Free Lending Library, and what does it have to do with Holmes? What's the connection between my copy of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes and a present-day murderer? How can, wrestler, how can collectors rest the answers to such questions from their books? As the title of the talk suggests, I see these volumes as more than books to be read, more than books that settle bibliographic questions, more than books as collectibles. Each one in a different way is a portal into time's past, an instrument for conjuring a glimpse of the thoughts, the sensibilities, the machinations, even the crimes of previous readers. The discovery of the backstory of these and other books in my library is a work in progress, and certainly a quest would not put that in, but that suits me just fine. I'd like to start with a magazine that made its way into my collection in 1987, exactly 100 years after its publication. It's a copy of Beaton's Christmas Annual, Victorian housewifery magazine, in which Sherlock Holmes made his first appearance in the story A Study in Scarlet. Beaton's is a rarity, 
Only 33 copies are known to exist. Of these 33 copies, only 10 are in their original wrappers. They're now among the most sought-after items for the Sherlockian collector. A decent copy sold at Sotheby's in 2010 for six figures. That's a far cry from the 25 pounds that Conan Doyle was paid for the story. Not only was that a paltry sum in its day, but it represented the sale of the story itself plus all subsequent publishing rights. It was a naive misstep on Conan Doyle's part and he would never make that again. The blunder galled him for 35 years. You find in many of his letters, in his autobiography, him whining about how he was never able to buy back the rights to the story. In this uh, letter to his friend Douglas Slayton, uh, in his day, a fairly well-known author and also the fellow who started the uh, Authors Club in London, and in it, he uh, tells his friend that New in the new year, 1888, Ward, Lock and Company brought out a study in Scarlet, paying 25 pounds for all rights. I have never had another penny from that book. I wonder how much they had had. At the time, though, Conan Doyle gave the man a very little thought largely because he had no particular plans to perpetuate Sherlock Holmes. For after the publication of this Sherlock Holmes story, he proceeded to ignore the not-yet-famous character for three full years. In this letter, uh, there's uh, no envelope of this letter, and the salutation is a dear sir, so I really don't know who it's to, uh, but from the tone of the letter, it sounds like it was like a newspaper man writing a profile about Conan Doyle. And uh, in it, he says, then there, excuse me, then there was this little book, little group of detective stories, which arose from my irritation at the fact that the detective of fiction appears always to attain his results in a perfectly arbitrary fashion, without any process of reasoning or thought. I only meant to write one little book, a study in Scarlet, to show what I thought to be the true deductive and analytic solver of problems. But as Conan Doyle goes on to explain, uh, I was forced to write more by the success of it. The beatings of my collection is not the pristine copy that one might hope for. It's a library copy that's been deaccessioned from the Coburg Mechanics Institute. <laughs> there we go. So the, question, the questions are, where is Coburg? What is Mechanics Institute? These are all things unknown to me. I decided to see what the nearest Mechanics Institute could tell me. And I'm embarrassed to say that up to that moment, I hadn't known about Mechanics Institutes at all, although perhaps there's some folks here familiar with uh, familiar with uh, the Richmond area too. For there's such an institution in Richmond, not presently active, but it was founded in 1854. The Virginia Mechanics Institute was once known as the other BMI. <laughs> it was uh, Richmond Night School for Technology and quote, the promotion and encouragement of manufacturers, mechanics, and the useful arts the mental and social improvement of the industrial classes. I was pleasantly surprised that there's a very active Mechanics Institute library in San Francisco, but a visit shed no light on, on a Coburg Mechanics Institute library. I learned there's no real affiliation among these institutions, but I did take home a pamphlet titled The Library of the Libraries of the Mechanics Institutes of Victoria, Australia by Francis Clancy. Pouring through it, it made no mention of the Mechanics Institute Library in Victoria. So I decided I needed to find out more information. I needed Mrs. Clancy herself. So in the middle of the night, I tracked her down by phone. And I eventually ended up working, uh, excuse me, talking with the president of the 
Vancouver Historical Society, Mr. Laurie Burchell. And I gotta tell you, you know, Laurie did not sound like Crocodile Dundee. I could tell he was speaking English, and I'm pretty sure he probably has difficult, uh, similarly difficult amount of time with my English, but we managed to communicate. He was dubious about Mechanics Institute Library in Cobra. But after I sent him an image of the stamp, I got a very satisfying email, email reply. Today, I visited one of the libraries of the University of Melbourne and examined the indices of Sands and McDougall directories for 10 different years in the period 1900 to 1931, but unfortunately did not find any mention of the Coburg Mechanic Institute Library, although plenty of others were listed. We can only speculate that the committee bought and stamped some books, but never actually established a library. So it sounded like a dead end. But out of the blue, a few months later, I got another email from Mr. Burton. Last week, I spent some time in the Mormon Historical Society archives. There were a large number of annual reports followed, filed by the Coburg Mechanic Institute. In the report for 1901, that's the year uh, the Institute was established, the secretary reports the addition of nine titles to the Colt book collection, including Amesis Beatings. So the Coburg Mechanics Institute Committee started the acquisition of the library, even if none was ever established. So now I know a little more than when I started to trace my meetings back in time, but when it arrived in Australia, what befell it after acquiring its Mechanics Institute stamp and how it made to New York City, Argosy Bookstore, all those questions are unanswered. My long-distance collaborator, Mr. Birchall, stands ready to look for evidence, but I'm stuck. So let's go on to the next book and the mystery it presented and my success in unraveling it. Having introduced Conan Doyle, having introduced his detective in a study of Scarlet, left Holmes and wrote The Mystery of the Plumer and Michael Clark, both Gothic novels sent, sent, set in 17th century England. Michael Clark was his most successful work thus far, selling a modest thousand copies. It gave him entree to the literary world. On the strength of Michael Clark and his study in Scarlet, Conan Doyle was invited to a dinner on August 1889 by J.M. Stoddard an agent for Americans Lippincott's, America's Lippincott's magazine. Another young author was also invited to that dinner, a fellow named Oscar Wilde. Stoddard used the occasion to commission a piece from each author. Both men accepted. Conan Doyle, within a month, wrote the novel The Sign of Four. Nine months later, Oscar Wilde delivered the picture of Dorian Gray. Conan Doyle wrote to Wilde congratulating him on the publication of his novel, and Wilde, Wilde replied, I am conscious that my work lacks those two great qualities that your work possesses in so high a degree, the qualities of sincerity and strength. Between life and me, there is a mist of words always. I throw probability out of the window for the sake of a phrase, and the chance of an epigram makes me deserve the truth. Still, I do aim at making a work of art, and I am really delighted that you think my treatment subtle and artistically good. In fact, they were, they were pretty close friends for a while. I, I, I don't know of any record of some uh, dramatic falling out. I just suspect that Oscar Wilde was a little bit too uh, colorful and flamboyant for the uh, <coughs> steadfast English Victorian Arthur Conan Doyle. What they did, they did go apart. After the sign of four appeared in Lippincott's magazine, Spencer Blackett published it as a book in England in 1890. And Something which I actually uh, 
observed and that finally learned this morning in God's class. If you look at the contents of the sign for this book, it's clearly made as not of leftover sheets than from the same plates that were used to print Lippincott's. Even the even the same advertisements in the back of the book. Well, excuse me, wrong way. Oh, right way. Um, Didn't sell so well. But Conan Doyle was smart this time. He had kept uh, all the serial rights to, this, to the story. And in this particular copy of the book, of the first edition of the book, you can see that where Conan Doyle writes to a publisher of uh, you know, some newspapers in northern England. Says, I'm going to pass the sign of four to as many provincial papers as possible. It makes good cereal, for it's full of incident. Ten guineas. Do you think there's an opening? successful in the United States. Well, let me rephrase that. It was very popular in the United States. It was not a moneymaker for Doyle, however, and that's because it was published and republished by pirate publishers, dozens of them. Pirateers were publishing houses that bought, borrowed, leased, even stole printing plates and reproduced books without an author's permission, often without an author's knowledge and invariably without paying nickel and royalties. <coughs> we see in this note, uh, this other note to uh, Robert Hemingsley, it's rough on me, but I have no legal redress. The author's dismay over the activities of the pirate publishers is easy to understand. The books were sloppy productions, enriching the publishers, but not the authors. The truth is, however, that these cheaply priced editions sold very well. They helped make readers of many people who had therefore had before that, that not been able to afford books. And they helped popularize a great many authors, Mark Twain, Jane Barry, Robert Louis Stevenson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Charles Dickens, Thomas Hardy, H.G. Wells were among the most abused. No small measure, U.S. pirated editions helped turn Arthur Conan Doyle into a public figure. <clears throat> For the collector of Conan Doyle, pirates are important. Some are a source of delight and discovery. The list of pirateers and the books they, pub they published is far from definitive, and still unknown pirates occasionally pop up. One can trace the geographic popularity of the book as various pirate editions are successfully published by publishers as they move from New York, Philadelphia, to Chicago, and so on. What's more, a number of pirated editions have bibliographic significance. For example, the first US printed version of A Study in Scarlet is the 1890 paper edition by Lippincott for which Conan Doyle received exactly nothing. In fact, Conan Doyle speculated later that he had been approached with the commission to write the sign for by Lippincott's because they were guilt felt guilty. <laughs> Another early example of this sort of thing is the story of the adventure of the Redheaded League. It appeared in the end matter of a pirated edition of The Doings of Raffles Hall, published by Lovell Correll and Company. Very, I find many things peculiar about this. this well, the story, although it appears there, is not mentioned on the title page, it's not mentioned in the table of contents, it's just there. But this, this printing 
uh, predates the first legitimate publication, uh, the uh, first non-magazine, legitimate non-magazine publication of the story and the adventures by, by over a year. Or how about the sign of four? Its first U.S. book appearance in March 1891 was in a pirate imprint of Collier, of Collier's called the Once a Week Library. While the first U.S. edition did not appear for two more years until 1893. While other Sherlock Holmes short stories made their first non-magazine appearance in a similar fashion, it's incredible how inexpensively pirateers were able to sell books. When Lippincott's finally came out with the uh, uh, authorized edition, again using the same, using either leftover sheets or the plates from the magazine, the book was almost six dollars. And to put that in perspective, in 1893, a bookbinder's wage was was two bucks a day. So a lot of money. But the sign of four from Collier's was 12 cents if you subscribed, and only 25 cents otherwise. In my library, there are 46 different U.S. pirateers of a study of the sign four, and surely there are many others. Some notable pirates. Strawbridge and Clothier, I mean, it's a department store in Philadelphia. Or Frank Muncie, very impressive. He was able to print and distribute this book at two cents a copy. The, the Chicago, those were all Philadelphia and New York. The Chicago pirateers were very busy as well. Here's some examples. But one that uh, confuses me is the, is the Weeks thing. What on earth is there a safe doing in the sign for? <laughs> Sign of Four, if you remember, takes place in India, and there's a chase along the Thames, and and and, and some doings in a country house in, in uh, England. There's no banks or safes in that story, <laughs> and certainly not a guy with two six shooters. <laughs> but at any rate, um, as examples, you can get a flavor for just how widely distributed this book was without making any money for Conan Doyle. The Montreal-born John W. Lovell is the son of Canada's earliest publishers and is my favorite pirateer. For sheer gall, his business ups and downs, his idiosyncratic political and philosophical beliefs, he was nicknamed Bookaday Lovell by his competitors, <laughs> and he considered himself a democratic reformer elevating the common man by selling him high-quality literature and cheap editions. It really had nothing to do with making money. <laughs> he was by turns rolling in dough or one step ahead of his creditors. And he somehow convinced the Postal Service that his paperbacks were second-class mailings, just like newspapers, and so he could mail them for mere pennies, and he sold, he, he sold for a number of years, the, the mid-80s, seven million cheap books a year. His aim was to dominate the market, issuing cheap editions as fast as possible. When he became frustrated by the uncontrolled competition driving, down, driving profits down to nothing, he started to acquire entire publishing houses. By 1892, one of his imprints, the United States Book Company, controlled more than three-quarters of all the paper-covered trade books and more than half the cloth-bound books published in the United States. Despite the enormous popularity of Lovell's cheap and widely available editions and the, and the fame of Brock Conan Doyle, he detested the pirateers. And yet, here you see a copy of the Sign of Four, pirated by the United States Book Company, one of Lovell's imprints, and cordially inscribed by Conan Doyle. Well, why did Conan Doyle sign a pirate? When and where? 
I mean, this signature could not be more surprising than finding a pickled calf's foot in your cornflakes. <laughs> this is the second backstory I would like to talk about. I know of only six pirated Conan Doyle books that the author described. And curiously, they were all signed when Conan Doyle was in Chicago, and they're all United States Book Company publications. My pirate is inscribed to Harlow D. Higginbotham, the son of Harlow N. Higginbotham. Higginbotham Pear was an important figure in Chicago. He was a leading businessman, civic leader, philanthropist. And at the time, his family was very well known in Chicago and very active in civic affairs. Higginbotham was a senior partner in Marshall Field Department Store. He was a founder of the Field Museum, and he was president of the World's Columbian Exposition, which was held in Chicago in 1893. So how then did Higginbotham and Conan Doyle meet? Well, here's the story I pieced together with help from Fred Kittle's monograph, Arthur Conan Doyle in Chicago, from contemporary Chicago newspapers in the Newberry Library, where Fred's collection is, by the way, and the enthusiastic help of their wonderful librarians, particularly Jenny Schwarzberg. Conan Doyle first toured the United States in 1894, stopping in Chicago three times between October 2nd and December 10th. His first official undertaking was a talk on October 12th for the Chicago's 20th Century Club, which meant Oh, the talk was entitled Facts and Fiction About Great English Novelists. The club met in a bijou theater on the third floor of Higginbotham's uh, Michigan Avenue mansion. It was there that the author inscribed three books to the Higginbotham, studying Scarlet, The Sign of Four, and Michael Clark. New York bookseller James Cummins, who was the source of my inscribed copy, sold the three in 1991. Cummins got the books from an elderly Chicago collector who had relocated to New York some years before and he was asking me to keep his identity confidential. The two were two, Conan Doyle and Higginbotham, were again in company at a dinner in Conan Doyle's honor afterwards, also at the Higginbotham mansion. There Higginbotham famously misspoke in toasting his honored guest. He referred to him as Canon Doyle. And as a result, Doyle was referred to by the press by various religious honorifics for the balance of his American <laughs> I surmise that Higginbotham purchased the books especially for the, that dinner occasion. Why? Well, let's take a closer look at the ownership signature. As you can see, the signature is dated October 12, 1894, the very day of Conan Doyle's lecture which we know from the newspaper. And the following day, the 13th, it talks about Conan Doyle's address at the 20th Century Club. And how do we know the signature is correct? That is, the, the uh, Higginbotham signature is correct. Um, I certainly don't know, didn't know off the top of my head what his signature looked like. Well, here eBay came to the rescue. Um, he was president of the World's Columbian Exp Exposition the year before. And at one, in his role as president, all the admission tickets, printed admission tickets, all came with his signature on it. So a several month search on eBay turns up an admission ticket for the World Columbian Exposition. And I think you'll agree that those two Higginbottoms match. Well, Conan Doyle's three-week visit to the United States lasted 65 days, and he returned home on December 15th. He enjoyed the trip very much, enjoyed the trip to the New York very much, and the fruits of his fame, clearly, clearly the result of Sherlock Holmes' stories. In fact, in his letters back home, some of his letters back home, he complains that he had all these talks prepared, and yet the crowd always demanded that he be reading some from Sherlock. In case there is any doubt, uh, Conan Doyle, like, like many, like most Victorian gentlemen, 
Cave kept a series of, of notebooks through his life. Uh, there's a set of notebooks with which he kept while he was resident at a place uh, in Norway. In one of those notebooks, he makes this note in December of 1893 that he had killed Holmes. <coughs> you all remember the story uh, of the final problem where Holmes and Moriarty apparently tumbled to their death over the falls and Holmes is gone. But he was un Doyle was absolutely unapologetic. Uh, he gave a speech at the Authors Club uh, a year after, about a year after his return from the U.S., in which he states, "I have been much blamed for doing that gentleman to death, but I hold that it was not murder, but justifiable homicide and self-defense. Since if I had not killed him, he would certainly kill me." So just in case anybody asks you if there's any ambiguity as to Conan Doyle's affection for the character, <laughs> he killed the man, cheerfully. <laughs> but, you know, uh, uh, as, we, as we know, uh, uh, at, at this time, 1893, the, the public didn't know. As we know, his death was only temporary. The public had no such uh, knowledge, and his admirers were beside themselves. All they had for solace were two long stories, 12 short stories that were serialized in The Strand in 1891, second series of 12 short stories that were serialized in The Strand in 1892, and although this handful of Sherlockian works may not, may, have, not, may not have sufficed for the readers, it was enough to give Conan Doyle a comfortable life. And so he happily turned to more substantial, in his, in his words, literary endeavor. Wrote The Refugees in 93, Parasite in 94, Stark Monroe Letters in 95, The Exploits of Brigadier Gerard in 96, and so on. Those were, the those were the titles that particularly pleased him. But sales of his Sherlockian works continued to grow. It's true that the first Sherlock Holmes novels earned Conan Doyle recognition and a bit of money, but it was the short stories that changed Conan Doyle's fortunes. They were collected into a book, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes in 1892, which is the next book we're going to consider. The first edition, first UK edition of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes sold some 10,000 copies. And the success of it ignited sales of his earlier copies. For example, within one week of the appearance of the adventures, 3,000 copies of the sign of four sold. That's three times as many as sold in its first year when it was first released. How am I doing my time? The, uh, this first edition, um, excuse me, I, I, have many, I find many editions of the adventures intriguing. For example, this first English edition. It's fascinating because the date of its inscription, blow that up a little bit, is eight days before the official publication date. So, likely, you now have all the evidence out here. But likely, this is what we would call an author's sample copy. The publisher sent me sent him some number before the book went, for, went on for sale, and his enthusiasm, he inscribed and gave one to somebody. But there's insufficient time for me to delve into the copies of the adventures in my collection. There are quite a number which are pretty interesting. So let's focus on this one volume. What you see here is the only known copy of the English first edition, first date, in a dust jacket. Astoundingly fresh and beautiful, isn't it, for a 125-year-old volume? For me, this book has all the elements a bibliomaniac could ask for. <laughs> Bibliographic rarity, impeccable condition, twists and turns in the provenance, and as you'll see in a minute, even murder. 
Until half a century ago, no one actually knew whether the first English adventures had ever been issued in a dust jacket. The memoirs, yes, but the adventures in jacket had been elusive. There was a second state adventures in jacket in the personal collection of Lou David Feldman, the formidable uh, bookseller who operated the LDF bookstore in New York City from 1935 to 1970. Feldman pretty much single-handedly elevated detective fiction and Sherlock Holmes from its then Rodney Dangerfield status. In 1957, at the Biggest Street of Regulars, that's the New York Sherlock Holmes Society, at their, at their annual dinner in 1957, Feldman printed this keepsake, and he explains, for 20 years, collectors have asked us, did the 1892 adventures of London Noons appear in the dust wrapper? Our answer was invariably the same. We did not know. The adventures you see pictured here is the first and only dust jacket we've seen on a copy of this book. But it bears the legend on the title page, and so is the second edition. The flimsy dust wrapper is a pale green to match the brilliant covers. <coughs> Please note, if you can, this is still Feldman's words, that the legend Southampton Street appears in the rectangle near the top of the vignette. I'll show this one up in a second. But the legend Southampton appears in this rectangle on the top of the vignette on the front cover. Please note further that we've successfully resisted the almost overwhelming temptation to embrace this as a brilliant copy of the first edition with a dust wrapper. Bibliographic truth must out. So according to LDF, in 1893, first edition second state, which he called the second edition, of the adventures had been issued with a jacket. And the 1894 first edition of the memoirs had also been issued with a jacket. He owned them. But even LDF could not be positive as to the existence of a jacket for the 1892 first edition first state of the adventures. You know, dust jackets, I, I, I believe, are known as early as 1840, something like that, but a good deal before, even a good deal before this. But they were these very utilitarian affairs. Their intent was to keep the books clean on, on the journey from the printer to the bookstore. And so when they finally got to the bookstore, they got tossed and the book got put on the shelf. Uh, so the, uh, the number of jackets that have survived of these uh, 19th century books is very, very, very small. When Sherlockian collectors hear the phrase according to LDF, they hear the ring of biblical authority. Feldman devoted himself to Sherlockian rarities. His success in turning up astounding material remains unmatched. He was responsible for, um, for discovering six Sherlock Holmes short story manuscripts. He was responsible for, for finding The Valley of Fear. It's one of the novels, manuscript. And a great many first and early edition copies. And at least four Beaton's Christmas annuals and wrappers. And he also sold books in the 1960s for Adrian Conan Doyle, the author's uh, surviving son who was also the state's literary executive. But Sherlockian collectors are ever hopeful. So in the spring of 1981, Mark Hine of the Bibliopticus Books was visiting J. Stephen Lawrence Rare Books of Chicago. And he was considering whether to buy a small collection of books that Connecticut had recently acquired. Connecticut took him into the back room and showed him the book. It's still the only known copy of the true first edition of the Adventures in Jacket. We blow up that street sign, it's empty, whereas in the second, uh, second uh, issue, the, south, the correction has been made both on the cover of the book and on the dust jacket, and has, has, has the street name.
Hein purchased the collection, eventually selling this particular book in 1984. But a scant two years later, it was back in his possession for an astounding reason that I'll come to momentarily. The buyer in 1984 was a Utah bookseller named Mark Hoffman. Well, Mark Hoffman was assembling a children's literature collection for his wife and himself. Conan Doyle, Conan Doyle's The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes, joined you know, Lewis Carroll, L. Frank Baum, and others on Hoffman's shelf. So who is Mark Hoffman, for those of you who didn't murmur? Yeah, 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 we did that. I want that. Mark Hoffman is the best forger who's been, ever been caught. Come on. Sorry, just bear with me for a second here. I'm not good with this technology stuff. <laughs> Ah, Mark Hoffman was the last member of the Mormon Church. He was a very talented forger, and I mean he was talented. The paper, on his forgeries, the paper was right, the ink was right, the handwriting was right. If it were a letter with an envelope, the Franken mark on the stamp was right. If there were internal references in the letter to the weather last week or whatever, that was correct. They, they were both physically and intellectually perfect. But by the mid-80s, Hoffman's convoluted business dealings and mounting pressures to produce new discoveries for which he had already accepted payment, but hadn't delivered the goods yet, began to unravel. So to distract his customers, creditors, and the authorities, he constructed three bonds. In November 1985, he blew up three people. His first two victims were killed instantly. The third victim was Hoffman himself, uh, presumably an accident on his way to deliver it to someplace else. And he was grievously injured, but he eventually recovered after the trial. This is Hoffman's current. Oops, no, this is not. This is Hoffman's current residence. He was moved actually about two months ago for uh, uh, 25 years of good behavior from solitary maximum confinement to this much gentler facility. And. Uh, I don't think he's going to get parole. I mean, given that he blew up two Mormons, he defrauded the Mormon church, and has not made good on his plea bargain, I think he's going to stay in jail for the rest of his life. I did try and correspond with, with Hoffman. <laughs> and the first letter came back with a stamp on it said, undeliverable without commitment name and commitment number. So, of course, I said, oh, I know, I can use Google, and I can find anything out. <laughs> but what I learned was, at least for the California state penal system, if you want, you can find out an inmate's grandmother's favorite flavor of ice cream. In Utah, the only thing you can find out is where to send a job application. <laughs> Uh, so I was whining about this one evening at the club, and one of the fellows there is a uh, retired correction officer. <laughs> and he said, give me the name. And three days later, Gordon comes back and says, okay, here is, here's his commitment name, and here's his commitment number. So I go, great, I'm all set. So I wrote him again. This time, the letter came back marked 
Contents not authorized, return to sender. What could possibly be in there as an innocuous letter, as, as flatteringly and as, uh, as, I, as I could? I was asking about his personal collection and the books he had and why they appealed to him and so on and so forth. And included a self-addressed stamped envelope. I figured maybe his you know, stamp and paper and stuff might be a problem for him. And then I read that the correspondence to uh, Hoffman was scrutinized by the FBI because they had found in some of his very early letters that he had been passing in code instructions to unknown Confederates to do bad things to the jerkers on that were at his trial. <laughs> so now I'm looking at him and I go, oh my god, you know? <laughs> so now I'm reading my letters and, you know, and I got all excited and, you know, what the I guess the FBI knows about them now. <laughs> um, but then I, had a, then I had a conversation. Actually, Jennifer Larson, you folks know Jennifer? Uh, a book deal, wonderful, wonderful book dealer has been active at RBS. Um, she was the person designated by uh, the Utah court to interview Mark Hoffman, uh, who was supposed to uh, reveal all the forgeries he had made and who he sold them to and, and so forth. And I was talking to Jennifer, and she says, well, what was in your letter? And I said, well, and I said, this and this is anything else. And I said, oh, self-suggest stamp envelope. She said, you can't put in stamps. And I said, why not? I said, well, they don't know that you might be putting the, you know, a dot with LSD underneath the stamp. Contraband. So I wrote a third time. <laughs> this time, no stamp. came back with no response. And I have to confess, I dropped the ball. I haven't considered pursuing it. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't pursued him any further. So I have, I have not had the opportunity to correspond with Mark Hoffman. So thus far, we've traveled chronologically through the publication path of three Sherlock Holmes books. The first story, first Sherlock Holmes story ever written, a study in Scarlet which came from an institution that was thought to have never existed. Then we visited the second Sherlock Holmes story, which was pirated, but nevertheless inscribed by Conan Doyle. And finally, a seemingly unique copy of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes with murky origins that was previously owned by a murderer. As I suggested early on, there's a susurration from my bookshelves, a constant hum of questions to be answered. This whispering is out of range for most people, but it's perfectly audible to me and alluring to me. Happily, thanks to generous and untiring librarians, friends, colleagues, researchers, collectors, scholars, retired corrections officers, <laughs> and others touched by the gentle madness. I dwell on the possibility, the hope, of ferreting out the backstories and personalities that you hear in my books. Thank you. If there's time, I'm happy to entertain. I'm happy to entertain questions. That bad, huh? <laughs> um, a quick question um, that you may not know the answer to, but uh, it's okay. I'll make it up. That's good. I, I would expect that. Um, my my uh, question is that Doyle obviously knew that there were pirated copies of his works around. Do you have any indication that he tried to keep track of them, or was he just aware of them? Was this a common problem? There's no, there's no, there, there's, there's no evidence I know of that in any sense he tried to keep track of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I've seen any number of letters, and then there's, been, there's two books that he wrote on um, uh, his uh, two trips to the United States. He made one in 1894, and he made a second one in 1923. Okay. And they're replete with references to the pirate problem, but they, n none of them show any evidence of him trying to keep track. Thank you.
wouldn't do them any good. No, as like I said, he had no redress. You know, they, they practically, practically, the copyright law is an unbelievable mess. And pra practically speaking, he had no rights. Had no practically speaking, he had absolutely no rights at all uh, until around 1911. There were, you know, there were these guys. First of all, until the 1871 statute, he literally had no rights. The, the U.S. copyright laws only protected citizens. And then in the modification to it, the, the one special gotcha was uh, for something to be copyrighted in the United States, it had to be first published in the United States. So, so he was, he was dead. Yeah, thank you. Anybody else? Well, now that Hoffman has been transferred to a less secure prison, do you think you can correspond? Would you pick it up now? Well, I should try, and I, and, I, and actually, it's all it's all on me. Uh, you know, the first thing again, my my corrections officer friend said is forget about Hoffman, write to his caseworker, and I haven't done that. So the ball is you may be right, uh, but I have I have nobody to nobody and nothing to blame but me and Sloth. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Um, can you describe one or two or three books that you have about which there's something intriguing that you'd like to um, ferret out the backstory of? Besides these, you mean? Yeah. Um, let's see. Well, I, ha I have uh, uh, a couple of pirate editions which, based on ownership signatures and the history I do know of the publisher, called Handy Classic Series. I suspect are probably the first printed, non-serialized printed edition of those two stories on the planet. I haven't, I haven't done the research on those. So that's one. Well, that's an example. But there are lots of them. I, I, I may have missed this, but did you say that uh, Doyle signed those pirated books that Higginbotham present with him because it was taken by him and he was at that meeting. You have all the facts I have. So I'm noticing that you know, Doyle was too gracious. You know, he had, uh, you know, the day before he'd given a lecture that night, they threw dinner in his, in his honor, and his host came up, almost, almost certainly not knowing that it was a pirate book, and said, would you sign my book, please? And so I imagine he was just too gracious to say, get lost, Charlie, buy a real book, and then I'll send it. <laughs> but I, I don't know. There's nothing, nothing as juicy it, you know, in the story as, that, as you know, Conan Doyle grudgingly signed the book. <laughs> I don't know. Yes, ma'am? Is your uh, gentle madness confined to books related to Sherlock Holmes, or does it extend to the first issue, first edition of the VHS tape of Sherlock <laughs> 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 um, the, uh, the short answer to your question is I, I have broken one of the cardinal rules of a good collector, and that is to stay focused. <laughs> uh, but I, li I like to think there's a coherence to what I have. Uh, so no, I don't have I don't have anything like that. I do have a fair amount of early uh, theatrical movie material, early, meaning uh, you know pre nineteen thirty five. I have a very small number of unbelievably screwball things simply because they appeal. I got have a um, a uh, 1923 Ford Model T compression fester that has on the dial, it has a picture of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> so, so, so I can't tell, I can't tell you what, all the piece, of all the garbage in the world with Sherlock Holmes on it, I don't know, but that one particularly caught my fancy. So I have a small number of things like that. But no, it's, 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 it's books, it's manuscripts, it's letters, and a fair amount of, of early theater and uh, movie theater. 
I'm working right now, by the way, I'm very excited about this, on another silent film. There was a, uh, a thought to be lost, German silent, made in 1929, cleverly called The Hound of the Basketball. And a print showed up in a Polish archive, a Czech print showed up in a Polish archive. So we're hard at work on that. Fun stuff. Please join me in thanking you. There's a reception in uh, at Rare Book School down in Alderman One, to which you all are most cordially invited. And Glenn will be there to be hounded and Baskerville for additional questions. So off you go.